Awesome. Well, excited to have Guillermo Rauch from Zeit here with us today. Guillermo, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. For sure. So you want to kick us off just by sharing a bit about your background and what you guys are building at Zeit? For sure. I summarize my career as having started as an open source engineer. My first few jobs were around freelancing and, and things like editing open source systems for other people. And then I quickly became in love with the idea of creating and contributing to open source projects. So it's kind of the meta work behind the work. And that led to a career of very successful open source projects. Like I was part of the core developer team at MooTools, which was a large inspiration for what later became FBJS at Facebook and later React, obviously. I created a library called Socket.io for real-time communication that was used within Office 365 early on and other Microsoft products for exchanging data in real time from clients and servers in a multi-transport way, robust, reliable way. And my career has really been all about JavaScript. So we have always been passionate about empowering front-end developers. So Zeit just became that opportunity to create a company that would create the best possible tools and workflows for those front-end developers. And with the rise of Jamstack, I mean, the JavaScript developer really has become the center of gravity of the universe, of this developer universe. So it just all made sense. And assuming given your open source background, that's where you all started with Zite as well? Yeah. So I was working at WordPress before. So the parent company of WordPress, Automatic, bought my previous startup. And what I noticed inside was that, first of all, the world was starting to move away from this coupling between front end and back end. One of the exciting things that was coming up when I was at WordPress was plugins that would turn it into a headless CMS, which basically means that you're turning WordPress into an API. And then you can build any decoupled front end that queries those APIs. So those were kind of the early indications of this new world of, okay, if you're a front end engineer, you can start on your own, really. You can create all this rich interactivity and awesome applications that query other systems through their APIs. And the kind of opportunity that we saw was there was obviously React was becoming really popular and really exciting because it was giving, it was producing all these great results all over the internet. But it's really hard to get started with it. And at Zide, we've always been about this idea of great DX or developer experience. That's kind of one of our foundational principles. And we saw that the DX, so to speak, of React was quite lacking. And it was really hard to start a project and to get going and to ship it. So Next.js was the project and framework that we created that became this application framework around React. And we didn't really think much of it at the time, but it's really blossomed into one of the fastest growing and just most exciting open source projects that we've ever been involved with. It kind of just towers over even all my most successful open source projects in the past. And then as a business, we saw the opportunity of creating the workflows and platform for deploying frameworks like this. So frameworks like Next and, and Gatsby and frameworks built on top of Vue, all these tools for front-end developers that are open source kind of build this really robust foundation on top of which you can do a lot. 
And when you started building open source frameworks, was the thought that you were going to build a business around it? Or at first, was it just a project like some of the other projects that you had built throughout your career? That's a great question. So I'm a big believer in two somewhat contradictory ideas. So the first one is that obviously, and this one is not too controversial, is that the most important thing that you can do in order to build a successful business is to create a lot of customer value, to make that value be as viral and just distributed as possible. So I think open source is perfect for that because we always get surprised at the adoption of Next, for example, at the very highest levels of, of execution of the largest companies in the world where we never had a chat with these people. Like they were just so self-sufficient and autonomous in their ability to learn, use, master, and ship this projects built on top of Next. And obviously throughout the journey, they, they get in touch with us and we help them out more and so on. But the getting started of open source is just so quick and viral because people will then recommend the solutions to their friends. In a lot of cases, companies will play around with open source products during hackathons or, or while building smaller features of their new projects or websites and so on. But the other part of it is that open source needs some fundamental, strong backing and foundation, right? So with just code being submitted on an ad hoc best effort basis, you're not going to build a robust solution that people and companies and everyone doing projects of all sizes will come to and find that there is a reliable and up-to-date solution. And there's a number of ways that open source faces that challenge, whether it's security, whether it's now the inevitability of taking these projects and making them serverless and self-hosted and autonomous as, as a platform offering. And we see that opportunity ourselves. We see that, okay, open source is a great place for you to get started. But then when you're betting big on an open source solution, you don't want to be on your own. For sure. So it sounds like open source is really key and important for you guys and getting in the door, landing and potentially expanding within organizations. But once it comes time for an organization to rely on you more seriously, they might start looking for something beyond the open source offering. Is that is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. And whether it's open source or not, just really becomes an implementation detail, right? Because really, even what I look for today, when as we build our platform, and I think about choosing the best possible vendor for every dimension of execution of our company. I always look, of course, open source, but then I want that ability to take that software. And in some ways for operational or management or cloud reasons, I want it to sort of be invisible to me because a great example is services around database offerings, right? Like I always choose open source databases, but then when it comes to reading and writing and scaling my database, I just want it to be out of the way. So that's kind of how we see the world evolving is that what people tend to look for is robust and easy to use services. And they'll pay for those services and they'll look for things like great support, great SLAs, great documentation, great open source frameworks and clients and SDKs. And I think that's how you kind of build the, the best of both worlds. And so given that you guys started with the open source offering, when did you actually decide to introduce a paid product? 
I think it was really natural because one of the trends that's really exciting that we're seeing is that in the past, you would build your framework or your sort of developer tool in complete isolation of the cloud. So not only because the cloud was early on or whether it didn't exist or whatever, but the primitives of the framework didn't consider the existence of the cloud. So this is why containers in the past became popular because they would take the software as is, as a black box where it just, whether it's on your computer, it's in the cloud, it's the same. And it seemed attractive, right? Because they were like, oh, like it's the same everywhere. But what we're starting to see is the opposite, is that you don't want it to be the same everywhere because when you take your software to the cloud, there's all this now interesting primitives that you can use. So you don't benefit from boxing everything into this unit that is the same on your logo and it's the same in the cloud. So what's been happening is that frameworks have been starting to expose primitives that are, I would call cloud-native primitives. So one such example is when you build a website with Next.js, you can, of course, deploy to a legacy solution, like a container and so on. But if you choose to deploy it in, in let's call it for, for the sake of this example, the cloud-native way, we can make really interesting optimizations to your deployment. So an example is pages can be shipped to a global network, like a CDN of edges that will deliver parts of your application directly to your client as close as possible. Now, when your framework is, quote unquote, ignorant of the cloud primitives, it can simply not do this. And you're on your own for the hard labor of optimization and delivery and so on. In fact, a lot of people in our industry sometimes get concerned that when you optimize too heavily for developer experience, some vendors forget to worry about performance. Now, how do we marry this great developer experience with this great end user performance? Because at the end of the day, you care most about the visitor that comes to your website, the buyer that comes to your application, whether it's SaaS or e-commerce or just a marketing website, you care about the end user performance, not just the developer experience. So the way that we've been able to solve that problem is that the framework and the cloud have this intrinsic marriage. So long story short, it was very natural to come up with a paid product because of this need to marry cloud and framework and to deliver all those neat optimizations to businesses that benefit their users in ways that are so out of the way, transparent, automatic. And maybe I should have asked this question to clarify earlier, but is your paid offering synonymous with your hosted offering or is there a free version of the hosted offering as well? Yeah, there is a free version, of course, because... The idea is, okay, developers today start building something on their local computer. Okay, and how do you take that to the cloud as soon as possible? So we have we provide that service. You just integrate your Git repository or you, you run one command on, on your local machine and we'll give you a URL that is permanent, production ready, has great fidelity to what you're building. We call this a, a deploy preview. We'll give you that instantly whether you're a free tier user or you're a enterprise customer. So that's kind of the value that we give you. Okay, like deploy this to the cloud instantly in the most optimal way possible. And that actually gives you tremendous cost savings as well because there's no servers to manage. There's no infrastructure to deal with. It's just you taking your code and literally just shipping it in seconds. So that product 
it's just very broadly loved and applicable. So we have free tier customers that will just build small websites, experiments. A uh, funny realization we had early on was we actually had to make the free tier deliver on the exact quality and value as you know you would get as an enterprise customer, at least for your first initial experiences, because we found out that a lot of our largest customers ended up being just persuaded by front-end developers. They were just trying it out on the free tier. And they were like, look at this. Here's the URL. I just deployed it. And the person on the other side gets the URL. And they're like, wow, this works amazingly. I can't believe it's this easy. I can't believe it's this fast. So what we found is, okay, you have to treat, and this goes back to the idea of open source, right? You kind of want to treat everyone equally. You want to give a great experience to everyone. And for us, the free tier delivers on that because it selects for the features and performance that our customer, our first initial point of contact with the world, which is the front-end developer, they'll be in love with it immediately. And and how did you decide where exactly to place the paywall, given that sort of balance between winning the hearts and minds of the front-end developers so that they will go evangelize you to the rest of their teams, while also not giving all the value away for free to enterprises? Totally. That's a great question. And we're happy that we've found a really good balance here because my perspective on all this is I'm here to deliver a great economical efficiency to organizations and to enable them to focus on creating beautiful products that are seamless for their visitors and and customers. And, And the way to do that is by just making teams of developers happier, more productive, more efficient, and error-free. So one easy way of, of scaling that experience is teams typically have no issues paying for things that make them so efficient, right? So the free tier is more focused on the individual developer. Sometimes there's teams that are obviously, that fall kind of under a free tier as well. So like if you have a team of open source developers, or you want to support a framework or nonprofit or educational tier and so on, we have some exceptions to that. But Broadly speaking, what the initial idea was, which is like, this is just going to be a way of quickly deploying and hosting, later on saw the most value in frameworks around workflows and collaboration, meaning bring your entire team to this, right? So when you're bringing your entire team to this, that's a strong signal that we're creating value for you as a company, as a business, as a research project, wherever it is. And later on, the workflows around your collaboration with the team are further indications of usage. So as an example, the more you build or the more you push that triggers your deployments gives us an indication of, well, they're using the platform a lot. They're relying on this every day to build their products. So it's natural that you you would want to invest in us because we're giving you these great results. And that shows up in Feature upgrades such as faster builds, more concurrency, more seats, all kinds of things that matter to this other kind of user, so to speak. Got it. 
And so I know a bunch of folks who we speak with who you are early, earlier than you are, certainly, and in the days of having an open source offering and moving towards monetizing it, will get nervous about their users' reactions to that, right? This was something that I was using for free. Perhaps I was contributing to it. And now you're asking me to pay money. But do you feel that you guys have, have been able to work around that pushback given you've both shown value to your customers early as well as waited for it to be a team buy instead of an individual buy? Totally. What I was describing earlier is that by really understanding what each stakeholder needed, we're able to not really have to work around it. We worked on it in a very frontal manner. We're like, okay, what are the set of features and interesting things that when you're wearing your hat of hobbyist, experimenter, or even like people that work with comics and like want to build something uh, during the weekend or you know their personal website and whatnot. These are all examples of we're really not getting on the way and you're, we're not betraying your trust. And if you started with an open source free solution and then you see, oh, there's a, uh, there's a platform offering for this, then I, I do think that it follows that some of it for some use cases should be free. And the more you empathize with those and the more you empathize with the other side of that, which is, okay, where is my platform actually delivering value to people that, for example, are paying engineers hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And like, we're here to deliver a, a great improvement in their lives and their efficiency and their productivity and so on. So by finding that value equilibrium, you're able to continue that great relationship with the open source communities, with customers that fell in love with your product when it was just a beta or an alpha, customers that have trust you for that spirit of open source. So I think it's nice that we can have the cake and eat it too, so to speak. And so I guess one thing we didn't talk about earlier when talking about some of the benefits of open source is just contributors to the project. So has that dynamic changed over time as you've moved from you know an open source project or a collection of open source projects to a business with an open source offering? We've been able to have a thriving open source community regardless of, you know, the business existing or not. And I would argue the business actually enhances that community. First of all, the expectation of companies that rely on your open source products are much higher than the person that just finds it randomly and, and files an issue. So we see everyone as our customers. So whether you're, you're coming to this open source project as a company or whether you're coming as an individual, now what companies tend to expect is, as I mentioned earlier, security clear and transparent communication, reacting to issues and, and triashing them and categorizing them by severity. Even though it's an open source issue board, sometimes we get comments or questions from people that are doing really interesting things that might be also customers of our platform, right? So we, as the stewards of the community, have to always be mindful of, again, all these different types of personas that are involved in the community we have to elevate people that are submitting contributions like PRs and issues. We can give them resources. We invite them to events, to our Slack channels. We reward them in different ways. Because at the end of the day, we're all building this commons together. And we want that to remain a piece of the commons. So we've actually drastically increased the attention to the project and therefore contributions to the project as we build our business. We have people, you know, have incredible first experiences because we've polished, as part of this process, we've polished onboarding to these projects a lot. We've 
polished educational materials a lot. So when people come into the project, they just find that it's gotten a lot better. So it's really been a symbiotic relationship. And the key thing where it shows up, I think, is that we've been able to maintain a huge level of transparency. And we've actually increased it, which is really interesting. So when it was just a random open source project that we didn't know how big it would get, then we would just push changes along. Then we realized, okay, wait, lots and lots of businesses are relying on this every day. We can't just like arbitrarily not hear their opinion on these changes. And I think a, a company that hasn't embraced open source would have quite a bit of tough time creating the channels for that kind of feedback and communication and so on that we kind of get for free with GitHub, for example. Like we will submit an RFC suggesting a proposed change and we'll hear from everybody, companies, engineers, managers, just everyone submitting their opinion and and, and weighing in on the issues. And I feel like if we hadn't started with open source, companies that operate as black boxes or companies that might just send you an email to try to get on a call with you would have a really tough time getting the high quality, strong signal that we get anytime we ask our community for feedback, we submit an RFC. Yeah, it's just, it's just, or even hearing from, you know, people that are creating new businesses on top of, of the platform. So it sounds like a lot of the feedback, you know, that's that's driving the product roadmap is coming from at least open source mechanisms. You talked a little bit earlier about, you know, the cloud product and the fact that a hosted solution sometimes requires things that an open source project just doesn't. And so I guess as you guys think about, you know, your roadmap moving forward, how do you typically decide what to give away, you know, in the open source offering versus what just to put in, in the hosted offering? Yeah, I think one framework that we use that is really, really helpful is the customers tend to want to pay for services rather than things like licenses. So I guess the best example here that I always come back to is Amazon's flagship infrastructure product, EC2, is built on a lot of open source technology. But one critical infrastructural component of that is the Zen hypervisor which is basically just a fancy name for the thing that virtualizes the operating systems that they run in the cloud. So that virtualization component is also, you can go and buy it off the shelf and it has a licensing model and so on. You can buy it from VMware or similar. And EC2, you just go sign up and say, give me the service of running that virtualization for me. I don't want to know how it's built. Now, if it's built in open source, I think, it's even better, especially because the company can contribute changes back to open source. You have the opportunity to look into the fundamentals. You can develop more secure products as a result. But the customer tends to prefer services that handle large complexities for them. So a great example is operating system upgrades, security upgrades, efficiency improvements. Like A great example for us is that you deploy your Next.js project or Gatsby or whatever with us, and things just get faster and faster and better every time without you ever executing an upgrade button. Our Edge network gets faster at delivering your pages. We've done this time and time and time again. Our build system has gotten 10 times faster over the years. And all these primitives are open source. The bottom line is that you want to develop with Next.js. You want to have a great 
local development experience. You want to be able to dig into the code. You want to be able to submit requests, diffs, changes, forks, anything you want. But when it comes to delivering what you've created with Next, that becomes an operational concern. That becomes a concern of a service. And that's where we draw the line. We, we continue to make Next.js and open source projects like it just more and more featureful. We'll never give you a, you're moving too fast, like, or you've, you're changing your page too much, or, or your page is too long. You need to upgrade to Next.js Pro. That's never going to happen. However, it has happened multiple times that customers just have really interesting requirements for how fast they want to move, for how fast they want to deliver your, their projects, for features for edge services like A-B testing and measurement and so on. And that's where they turn to a service. And that's where they are like, okay, you figured all these hard problems out for us. Here's my money. So given what you've learned around the demand for services, particularly when folks are using this in sort of a serious manner versus just starting to play around with it, what's your take on business models for open source businesses that just provide the open source offering and then charge for like enterprise level SLAs, for example? Yeah, I, th- I think that's another great way. I, th- I think it really comes down to what is the value that you're providing to the customer, right? And And what we find a lot is that at least for our problem space, the developer that is working on a website or an application doesn't tend to think about or doesn't want to think about things like SLAs and support and security and so on. But those are concerns of the rest of the company. So I think I think that makes sense. I think the more, again, the more that you can productize and deliver this value in a way that the developer starts by trying it themselves and then the rest of the company gets onboarded and then you can continue to develop those deeper and deeper relationships with the companies that use you. And then there is a plethora of services on top and guarantees on top that they tend to buy. Like in our case, there is professional services that also come with rolling out Next.js and support services that come with rolling it out in a big way. There is SLAs that have to do with uptime and security and, and so on. And I think those are great ways to monetize. So yes, if you wrap that all up, I know you talked about a number of lessons you've learned from building Zite so far, at least. But for folks who are, you know, a few steps behind you in building a business on an open source foundation, what are the, some of the most important lessons or learnings that you think they should keep in mind? I think one is that if you really want your open source project to succeed, it's inevitable that you'll want to build a large scale business around it. Because I think what would happen is I would tend to, as an open source engineer early on, I would tend to underestimate the nuance of the problems that come at scale when shipping these products and how subtle things like backwards compatibility and developing relationships with your customers and hearing them out about how they're using it and what pain points you realize that it quickly becomes, if you really want to succeed and, and turn this into a really great thing. It's just as as simple as spending a lot of time, but also spending a lot of time in what I call the meta framework. Uh, This comes from an idea of a Facebook engineer where he's working on a new language, programming language. And he said, what I realized is that the more I work on the language fundamentals, like the type system, the syntax, and so on, the more I realized that the most important thing is the meta language. And the meta language in the metaphorical picture of an iceberg, the tip of the iceberg is a language and the 
bottom massive piece of ice is the meta language. So this mental model I found to be tremendously applicable to other domains. So for us, we build a framework and then we build the meta framework. One of the things that has made Next.js the most successful is nextjs.org slash learn, which is this interactive tutorial that is constantly getting tweaks and updates. So that's part of the meta framework. And that part of the meta framework turned to be far more important than, I don't know, maybe the name of an API inside the framework. So I think the same goes with companies and the same goes with this idea that an open source engineer that endeavors in building out the meta framework will see that they're effectively building a company. They're building support channels, documentation, services ultimately, because you might get outcompeted in your open source developer experience if you don't have a companion service, as I mentioned earlier, that understands what the cloud is capable of. So I think one mistake that I see also with open source is that by trying to make it so autonomous and self-sufficient, which is a great principle that of open source that, oh, I can just run it anywhere, you actually lose out to tremendous enhancements and improvements that you could make if you're more open-minded about the cloud or just large infrastructure at scale that your open source project can integrate with. So obviously it's paramount to any startup to build great integrations with with other systems. It helps sales, it helps onboarding, it builds trust and recognition that, oh, this Zite product works out of the box with this headless CMS or this login provider, this metrics provider, that builds a lot of momentum, right? But the same is true for open source. So you think of building your open source project in isolation, you'll miss out on developing this awesome integrations with the outer world. So ultimately, I think open source as a whole is best when it's always in service of this customer experience, developer experience, user experience. And in a lot of cases, that'll take stepping out of the code base stepping out of GitHub and seeing, okay, what are all the other fundamental primitives that I need to work on? And I think that the industry is quickly realizing this, right? Like I I joke that the bar for an open source project is so high today that you always have to come up with a logo and you have to come up with a website, animation. And whether you realize it or not, you're working in the marketing for your bespoke open source company. So I think my take on this is just continue going further and consciously down that path. I love it. Those are some great some great tips and thoughts and quite honestly some that might feel controversial to folks who who are starting out, but it sounds like you put a lot of thought into them and the mental models make sense to me. So, Guillermo, really appreciate you sharing all your learnings. I could pick your brain about this for for many more hours, but I'll let you get back to work and appreciate you uh, you joining us. Thank you so much. This is fun. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or really wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce daily content on our blog, and you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.